Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year. I'm Jen Malott, a partner in the antitrust practice at Freshfields in Washington and Brussels, and you are listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. As we always do, we are kicking off the new year by previewing our 10 key themes report, which takes a look at the most important trends in the world of antitrust for 2024. What's changing? What are the new challenges? How should businesses prepare? And fortunately for me, I'm joined today by an all-star cast to give us the lay of the land. First, we have Alistair Chapman, who's the global head of our antitrust competition and trade practice group and a partner in our London office. Thanks for joining us again, Al. Thanks, Jen. Hi there. We also have Mark Sansom with us, who's a litigation and antitrust partner and also our London managing partner. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jen. And last but not least, joining us again is Nanette Dodu, who's a partner in our Asia antitrust practice and who leads our China antitrust practice. Welcome back to the podcast, Nanette. Hi, Jen. Delighted to be here. So before we get into 2024, let's take a quick look back at 2023. Nanette, why don't I give you the tough job? How close to the mark did we get in our forecast? Well, Jen, in our 2023 forecast, we predicted that intervention by antitrust authorities would become more unpredictable. And that's played out when you look at Europe, the US and Asia. Let me just take a few examples. In Europe, we saw increased jurisdictional uncertainty with the uptick of Article 22 referrals to the European Commission, particularly in the tech space, for example, the Qualcomm Autotalks deal. And this was following the EC's landmark decision to review the Illumina Grail case, which fell below the thresholds both at European Commission level and also member state level. Separately, the European Commission also introduced its wide-ranging foreign subsidies regime, adding a further layer of complexity to deal-making in the EU. When you take a look at the US, using the FTC as an example, the FTC came good on its promise to adopt a broader vision of its Section 5 authority to address unfair methods of competition. So we saw this, for example, in the Amazon case. Asia, we also see this unpredictability. For example, we saw the SAMR, in China flex its codified powers to call in transactions that don't meet the notification thresholds. We saw this for the first time in Simsia Torishi, a deal involving the healthcare space where SAMR reviewed below the threshold deal for the first time and actually went ahead and imposed remedies. Thanks, Nanette. And, you know, I think another area that we highlighted in the 2023 report was on financial investors and the extent to which they would be in the antitrust spotlight in 2023. And I think that clearly played out in the U.S. We saw the DOJ and the FTC taking a much more aggressive stance towards financial investors, for example, in looking very closely at roll-up strategies by private equity funds and, and other similar entities. We also in the U.S. saw interlocking directorates staying right at the center of authorities' radar. I think that is something where we have yet to see real traction outside the U.S., although you know, in the EU, in the U.K., in APAC, we do see these kind of interlocking directorate-esque concerns about broad portfolios with overlapping investments, how information might be shared between those investments, how that all kind of translates into competition theories of harm. But as of yet, I think outside the U.S., that has not really translated into concrete enforcement actions. Mark, how about on the mass claims front? We predicted there'd be an uptick in mass claims enforcement and a lot of private actions of a collective nature. And I think we pretty much got that right. Uh, truthfully, that was a trend that was starting even before 23. So I think we just called that that would continue to expand and it has. Certainly, we've seen a lot of class actions in jurisdictions like mine in the UK, where we've seen a lot of single firm conduct claims brought. 
including without any prior regulatory uh, intervention by a competition authority. And also a lot of those cases really pursuing conventionally non-antitrust type issues, things with a consumer slant. And we'll talk a bit more about that later because that's definitely an emerging and growing trend. So we've seen a lot of that, but, but also in jurisdictions outside the UK, Portugal and a bunch of other places have seen similar trends emerging. And it does seem to tap into a bit of a zeitgeist about the expanding nature of antitrust generally and the way it's being used in litigation. And then the net has already referenced uh, in the US, the FTC having delivered on its promise in late 22 to review its Section 5 authority. And they certainly have broadened out beyond the historically recognized anti-competitive types of conduct into broader and different sorts of alleged unfair methods of competition. So I think yeah, we, we called those things out as being likely to happen in 23, and I think we were pretty on the money. Yeah, maybe just to add to that, Mark, and I don't think we necessarily win a prize for spotting this one, but I think we also got it right that there was going to be tougher antitrust investigations, probably more of them as well. And I think as anticipated, 2023 has been a year where we've seen a real return to unannounced investigations, to, to Don raids, both in and by the EC and also by member states and, and in the UK as well. And I think one of the interesting sort of changes is as a result of COVID, obviously people are working a bit more agilely than was the case. And certainly in the UK, we've seen the CMA trying to get permission to actually carry out raids in individuals' homes, uh, which is a bit of a, a marked step up from the type of intervention they used to engage in. Now, there's been a recent CAT judgment that's actually prohibited the granting of a warrant for such a raid, uh, actually on the case that I'm working on. So that might temper the CMA's enthusiasm a bit, but it's definitely part of the toolbox that authorities are attempting to use. And I think more generally, and again, it's an ongoing trend, agencies are looking to grow their powers. So in the UK, the, the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Act, that's going to bolster the CMA's information gathering abilities. And then if you switch to Asia, the JFTC, it's trying to bolster its investigative powers. And similarly, Updates to China's anti-monopoly law have empowered SAMR to actually take increased action in non-horizontal cases and to impose harsher penalties for more serious antitrust violations. And in parallel, I think we've also seen more aggressive use of existing powers. And Jen, you'll know this better than the rest of us, but the FTC has shown increased willingness to enforce RFIs against non-responsive third-party recipients. So I think businesses are going to need to be very careful uh, in how they're dealing with US agency requests. Looking at the balanced scorecard as a whole, Jen, I think it's fair to say we did pretty well in our predictions and that there's no slowing down in 2023. We can probably talk about whether we're going to see a slowing down in 2024. Yeah, indeed, Al. So let's talk about 2024. One thing that we are absolutely anticipating here is a continued evolution of what authorities and regulars can and should be doing. This kind of broadening of what fits within the scope of antitrust law. And that is something that I think is in some sense a reaction to what we're just seeing outside the world of antitrust, right? We have a lot of market volatility right now. We have trade realignment. We have wars. We have stagnating growth in many countries. We have global supply chain issues. And increasingly, antitrust regulators see themselves as part of that solution. Uh, and as part of that, they're going beyond their traditional roles and looking for ways to impact maybe parts of the functioning of markets that historically would not be seen as a traditional antitrust sphere. Things like labor markets, things about outbound direct investment from the U.S. to China. But Nanette, how do you see that? Jen, I couldn't agree with you more. I think what we're seeing is that globally, the use of antitrust enforcement 
is growing as a wider tool. So what we are seeing is that antitrust authorities are increasingly thinking about how they can use antitrust to address perceived market failures, macroeconomic challenges, and of course, geopolitical tensions. I think in other words, antitrust authorities are thinking beyond traditional antitrust norms. And this is motivated by several different factors. You mentioned a few, the market volatility, trade alignment. But I think the other factors that are also shaping the way antitrust is being looked at or being used in practice is the geopolitical climate, supply chain issues, the emergence from COVID-19 pandemic and food security, inflationary pressures, are also factors which are influencing how antitrust is being used. If you take the APEC region, you see this quite vividly. For example, some Asian forces have scrutinized household goods and food delivery sectors, arguably as part of a wider push to address cost of living challenges. And so you do see this expansion of the use of antitrust as a wider tool and as a means of addressing factors which go largely beyond antitrust. Yeah, and there's, I suppose there's an argument that at a high level, nothing has actually changed that much, by which I mean the EC, the CMA, the EU member state authorities and other agencies. I mean, as ever, they're still looking to promote competitive markets. They're looking to deliver economic growth. They're looking to foster innovation whilst all the time protecting consumers and, and protecting small businesses. But I do agree that there are different geopolitical drivers behind that, and also that agencies are ramping up their interventions to actually achieve these objectives. And I've already mentioned that the DMCC in the UK, that's going to give the CMA bulked up consumer protection powers. And I think it's fair to say that we're already seeing the CMA positioning itself as a bit of a bulwark against cost of living pressures, including in the grocery sector. In the Netherlands, the Dutch have been very active also in consumer protection particularly in the sustainability space, but not only there. They're also very focused on e-commerce operators. And then the EC has continued to pursue a real focus on innovation, again, to make sure they are safeguarding consumers and to make sure that consumers are getting the maximum benefit from ongoing competition. I think there is something in this concept of, of antitrust broadening and also getting rather fuzzier in terms of where the boundaries of it are now across all these contexts. And you certainly see that played out in the litigation space at the moment as well. Nowhere more so than in the UK, which I'm obviously very familiar with and spend a lot of my time in cases, where actually as a result of, I think, these global trends that we've described, and there's a sense that competition is being used as a panacea, it's the gap filler, it's the thing that is being looked to to address issues where there is no existing legislative tool that really bites. We've seen the use of the class action, the opt-out class action in particular, a regime in the UK, being used to pursue claims that are fundamentally not a, about antitrust, or at least not all about antitrust. And they're the sorts of claims that I think 10 years ago would have just struggled to get off the ground because the courts would have been quite resistant to the idea that the right mechanism to pursue these grievances was through the prism of a competition law claim, as opposed to, for example, the sort of market investigation, market study type tools that the regulators have to look at general features of a market that may not be functioning optimally in the interest of end consumers. And what's happened, I think, as a result of the things we've talked about already, but also specifically in the UK, because this regime was enacted for antitrust cases only and thereby created a huge incentive for claimant law firms and funders to shoehorn their cases that might fundamentally be about something else into what's meant to be an antitrust only regime because that's what's unlocked what unlocks the opt-out class action mechanism that's what unlocks the very attractive aggregate damages 
awards, which of course is what they're seeking to tap into. And so as a result of that, we've seen a turbocharging in these single conduct claims, which are characterized as being exploitive abuse claims, but are really, when all said and done, mis-selling complaints, their complaints about information opacity, their assertions that consumers are somehow, by virtue of dominant company conduct, not making optimal buying decisions for them. We've even seen claims now, opt-out class actions, in the area of environmental protection, with the wastewater claims that are being brought in the UK on the back of the very well-known issues about wastewater spillages. And so we're seeing antitrust blurring into all of these other adjacent areas. And my concern with it is I'm not sure where it leaves us in terms of knowing what the reference points are anymore. What, what are the legal underpinnings here? And we all know that antitrust evolves. We all know the categories of abuse never closed, but it's always done that incrementally. And suddenly we seem to be taking some quite large leaps. And I'm not sure what the legal underpinnings are anymore. I'm not sure what the tests are. The courts will apply in the end to decide where the dividing line is between lawful and unlawful conduct. And obviously, by extension, that's very concerning for business, because if you don't know what the ground rules are, especially when you've got, a, for example, an opt-out class action risk, which typically in these cases runs into the billions in terms of exposure, sometimes multiple, multiple billions, then I think that's a bit of a concern. So I, I think we're entering a very interesting era where we're going to be searching around now for what the touchstones and the legal tests are because it's all somewhat new territory. Fascinating, but also conceptually, intellectually, I think potentially a little bit dangerous. And we need to see whether the courts, and I think this is a prediction for 24, some of these cases are going to start to go to trial. And the court's going to have to start to decide whether there's a dividing line here. Is there conduct which doesn't properly sound as a matter of antitrust at all, because it's really something else? Or actually, can antitrust always apply over the top of all of this stuff? In which case, we're in the province of having to figure out what the legal tests are, because we don't have bright line tests for these things in the way that we do for predation or excessive pricing or any of the other established uh, abuses. So super interesting, but very novel. And maybe we should ask some of those questions that you're posing about the outer limits of antitrust to to chat GBT and and see what answers we get, because to take this in a slightly different direction... I don't think we can talk about 2024 and not talk about AI, particularly the surge in generative AI that we've seen over the last 12 months. And I think that is something that agencies are going to have to engage with at really quite a conceptual level over the next months, because obviously they will see the benefits of competition and innovation in the AI space but they'll also want to make sure they are appropriately regulating the growth of AI and to be issue spotting any potential harm, both to competition, uh, but also to consumers as well. And in this regard, I think the EC really leads the pack. Obviously, the AI Act was passed uh, just recently in December 2023. While that's unlikely to take effect until 2025, this was seen as the world's first comprehensive AI law. And I think it's fair to say that Europe was not undershooting on ambition here because its stated ambition on the regulation is to ensure that fundamental rights, democracy, the rule of law, as well as environmental sustainability are all protected from high risk AI, whilst simultaneously boosting innovation and and trying to make sure that Europe is a bit of a commercial leader in the field. And then similarly in the UK, it's building expertise on AI through the DMU within the CMA, and it has already undertaken a bit of a review of foundation models. The CMA is going to be looking at outcomes. It's going to take an outcomes-focused approach 
and therefore it's very focused on avoiding inadvertently harming smaller players, inadvertently harming innovation, whilst at the same time ensuring consumer protection. And, you know, prediction for me, I'm pretty confident that the CMA is not going to get to the end of 2024 without having published some guidelines on these topics. Yeah, and Al, I think that the US is maybe a little behind the EC and UK, but they're right there in thinking about this as well. We don't have any new legislation on the books, but President Biden did issue an executive order on AI in October, which in large part is really focused on issues of safety and security around AI, but it also talks about needing to understand the potential impact that AI can have on competition and on innovation. And following that executive order, we see the U.S. agencies really starting to think about competition issues and possible consumer harms that relate to AI. And they've pointed to things like whether AI tools could unfairly inflate prices or whether having control over the inputs into AI, like data and talent or even computational resources, could create barriers to entry or could slow innovation. So it's still, I think, at at more of a investigational stage? What are the types of harms we should worry here than kind of honing in on actual enforcement actions? But certainly this is right in the crosshairs of where the agencies are thinking. And Jen, just to pick up on what you're saying, I think we're seeing a similar trend as well in various jurisdictions uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. Are there a number of jurisdictions like Australia, China, Japan, South Korea, to name a few, that are similarly looking at the intersect and investigating the intersect between AI and antitrust. Of course, this focus on AI and digital markets more generally is not limited to these established jurisdictions. We're also seeing emerging antitrust regimes such as Thailand also show interest in this particular area. When you look at jurisdictions across the world, though, I think one of the challenges that we are going to face in 2024 is the fact that priorities and enforcement appetites do differ. Having said that, however, I think there is a a growing consensus around the areas that antitrust authorities should be looking at. And there are probably three key focus areas. Firstly, access to key AI inputs as possible barriers to entry and or expansion. Secondly, sustaining diversity in competition between models. And thirdly, the competitive effects on downstream markets and wider digital ecosystems. Quite apart from these very competition-centric issues, I think broader areas that antitrust authorities are looking at, and perhaps to pick up on one of the points you just mentioned, Jen, is security. I'd add that to that safety as well. There's also the area of transparency, fairness, IP and data protection. So I would think that these are some of the areas that are likely to be top of mind with antitrust authorities in 2024. And of course, we probably shouldn't forget that whilst we're focused on AI, that's really just part of the the wider conversation on the changing landscape of digital regulation. And Jen, you've obviously hosted a number of podcasts in the past on this, but we really are seeing the DMA kicking off now in Europe. We're seeing gatekeepers really still grappling with the impact of this and what it means for their business models. And in the UK, we are awaiting the DMCC. That's going to have probably a slightly less prescriptive approach than the European DMA, but it's just one more set of rules for big tech to have to deal with. Yeah, and of course, we're going to see a huge amount of litigation spinning off all of those things. So European level, the Digital Markets Act allows for private parties to bring direct actions in national courts against gatekeepers for non-compliance. 
and that kicks in as of March of this year. So that's an additional tier of enforcement beyond the Commission itself and European national competition authorities. And you can fully expect there to be actions in national courts based off alleged non-compliance with gatekeeper obligations. So that's going to be, I think, a fertile area for further litigation. Uh, and then in the UK, the DMCC, which Alex mentioned, provides for private enforcement again in relation to the new digital markets regime. So third parties that claim they have suffered a loss or damage as a result of behaviour on the part of strategic market status designated undertakings are going to be able to bring those claims in court. And that, I think, again, is going to be quite commonplace, I suspect, just given the general litigation environment that we've got in the UK at the moment. Interestingly, that bill is still winding its way through Parliament, but an amendment has been tabled that would also provide, if it were to be accepted and passed into law, for two things. One would be to allow consumers in those circumstances to bring collective proceedings where there's been a breach. In other words, class actions of the sort that we have for antitrust already, including opt-out class actions. Now, if that were to happen, that would be an absolute game changer because you know there is a huge volume of litigation funding out there for these opt-out class claims. And the majority already of the standalone abuse claims that have been brought under the class action regime in the UK have been standalone claims against tech companies. And the second thing is that if the amendment was accepted, it would oblige the Secretary of State to review if there are other types of claim outside of antitrust, which should benefit from the collective proceedings regime. Right back at the beginning of this, the government decided when passing the current collective actions regime into law that they would start with antitrust and see how it goes and then revisit expanding outwards. Uh, and that is back on the agenda again. Whether there's government appetite to do that at this stage, I don't know. But there's no doubt that the zeitgeist at the moment is very pro-consumer. And with a lot of the cases that have been in the news recently in the UK, for example, whether it's the wastewater stuff or it's the post office issues more recently, you can see that there is more government focus on facilitating class claims than there has ever been. And so I don't think it would be entirely beyond the realms of possibility that there is an expansion in that regime. And again, that would be an absolute sea change in the overall litigation environment in the UK. And I think by extension, you would see ripple effects because in the way that the UK antitrust class action regime has encouraged European jurisdictions to take steps in that direction, I think you could start to see the same thing. The trend generally over time is towards more North American style class action enforcement. And I think we can expect to see that continue across Europe. Speaking of legislative agendas, Mark, I think, you know, in the US side, digital regulation is something that has been on the legislative agenda for a while, continues to be on the legislative agenda. We are at an all time low watermark in the US of passing any kind of legislation. So I think it would be quite bold for anyone to predict that any legislation will get passed in 2024. But there are a lot of legislators and, and third parties who are really pushing for this kind of regulation in the United States. So I think whether or not something gets passed, this will continue to be part of the discussion in 2024 and beyond in the US. And that's the case, uh, regardless of what happens in our election this fall. And Jen, I'd like to just add to that. What we are seeing increasingly is that digital regulation extends beyond antitrust. And this is likely to be a trend we're going to continue to see in 2024. If I take China, for example, SMR has used as antitrust toolkit with respect to regulating digital markets, but that's just one piece of the regulatory puzzle for companies active in the space. There is broader government involvement in how digital markets are regulated. And these considerations are often driven by national security considerations, cybersecurity considerations, and other policy perspectives as well. 
And this can have far-reaching consequences. For example, late last year, proposed new regulations reportedly aimed at curbing online gaming caused the market cap of leading gaming companies to plunge significantly. In Japan, the JFTC will likely lead implementation of new digital legislation, but it will work together with the Ministry of Economy, which essentially houses the digital market competition headquarters, as well as other government bodies. In Australia, the ACCC currently leads on enforcement in digital markets, but the ongoing digital platform services inquiry calls for a holistic approach to policing digital markets, which goes beyond competition issues. And I do think that this is a point worth underlining as a trend that we're likely to see in 2024. Thanks, Nanette. I mean, I think maybe just to shift gears completely, another big topic that's worth picking up when we think about 2024 is sustainability, which is still really front and center in a lot of agendas. 2023 was the hottest year on record. We saw an unprecedented number of climate-based natural disasters, and it is becoming increasingly important for businesses to be really thinking about sustainability across their business practices. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think it continues to be the case that businesses have to be really mindful of the antitrust risks that can arise when you are cooperating with competitors and, and taking other actions to make sure that you are trying to meet those sustainability goals. In the U.S. at least, you know, the DOJ and the FTC have been on record about this, saying that there is no exemption from the antitrust laws for agreements that relate to ESG. And they're going to continue to look at those on a case-by-case basis within the traditional antitrust framework to see uh, if they are on the right side of the antitrust law or not. Although to be fair, Jen, that is probably more helpfully neutral than some of the wilder voices we've heard in the US for a couple of years now, who've been describing some of the investor-led ESG responses as, as the biggest antitrust violation in history. In, in the EU and the UK, by contrast, I think there's broader support across the, the broad political spectrum for ESG initiatives. And both the CMA and the Commission have published final guidelines on agreements between competitors that pursue sustainability objectives. And most of the agencies in Europe, Germans possibly being an exception here, have been encouraging informal consultation on initiatives. And what that means is that increasingly businesses can get some kind of direction as to how their agreements are likely to be viewed. And the CMA at the back end of 2023 actually has given its first approval under this scheme to an arrangement proposed by fair trade. So I, I think that's really a sort of welcome development for businesses in order to make sure that they're staying the right side of the line, whilst hopefully still being able to gain their sustainability objectives. And I think we will see a bit of a clearer picture as we go through 2024 on how agencies are going to approach sustainability and what they're going to need to be convinced of in order to give companies some comfort in this space. Well, I think that's definitely an aspiration that a lot of companies have, i.e. that there will be increased convergence. I think one of the problems we've seen so far, and we may see to some extent throughout this year, is continued divergence between authorities at international level. There is, of course, not yet consensus across the world on how antitrust tools can or indeed should be utilised to facilitate collaborative efforts that promote sustainability objectives. You've mentioned the EU and the UK with their final guidelines. 
Within the APAC region, you've also got the JFTC in Japan and the CCCS in Singapore that have also published guidance on how sustainability initiatives are likely to be viewed by the antitrust authorities in those jurisdictions. Others, and Jen, you mentioned the US, have held steadfast in the view that sustainability benefits cannot exempt an anti-competitive agreement. And I think there's a broad alignment on this principle. However, clearly, divergent approaches are creating risks for companies keen to collaborate on sustainability issues. And absent consensus, companies will need to conduct jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction analyses to ensure that their collaborative efforts do not run foul of the antitrust rules in the jurisdictions covered by the relevant initiative. Companies may also want to seek informal guidance, as you mentioned, Al. That's if it's available, of course, and that's not necessarily the case or will be the case in every instance. To obtain some comfort that the relevant initiative does not give rise to competition issues, that is, appropriate guardrails are in place to mitigate any antitrust risks. And I think finally, companies will also need to document the anticipated sustainability benefits because antitrust authorities are going to scrutinize those claims and companies will need to be able to substantiate them before the antitrust authorities. I just had a very quick litigation uh, comment to that. I I think we've already seen, and this goes beyond antitrust, we've seen litigation used as a means of pursuing ESG claims for quite some time, including on a a mass basis. So, for example, whether that's vehicle emissions claims or climate change litigation, those things are growing phenomena. But we're also now seeing antitrust deployed as a way of indicating ESG claims as well. And I I mentioned the wastewater claims in the UK earlier as one example. I think that's a trend we can expect to see continue as well as part of the broadening of antitrust that we've spoken about throughout this podcast. Thanks, Mark. Well, maybe to round things out, let's talk a little bit about what we are expecting on the M&A front in 2024. While it might not seem like it when you read the press, we do still live in a world where the vast majority of deals are not challenged on antitrust or foreign investment grounds. And we are in an M&A slowdown, but that is driven much more by higher interest rates, geopolitical tensions, and other factors than antitrust and, and other regulatory reviews. But it remains the case that global merger control, foreign direct investment, and now in EU, the foreign subsidies regime have become increasingly challenging for companies, both as a procedural aspect of M&A and also for those borderline and high-risk cases on the substantive outcomes. And we expect those challenges to continue in 2024. When we look at the merger control front, We still have a lot of regulators talking about concerns they have about historic under-enforcement, and that means a closer look at borderline cases, more skepticism for remedies, and then we're also seeing that the net of notifiable deals continues to get wider, and authorities continue to push the limits of substantive assessments by stretching established theories of harm, and in some cases still even testing new ones. On the FDI front, we are seeing increased scrutiny across the board, and in particular, outbound direct investment regimes are on the horizon. And then last but not least, in Europe, we have this new foreign subsidies regulation, which is causing headaches for a lot of folks. But this is essentially trying to get at an aspect that traditional competition review doesn't really capture, which is the impact of any kind of state subsidies that might have a distortive effect on competition and whether that is something that we should be concerned about as we decide whether or not certain deals should be allowed to proceed. Nanette, how do you see that in the APAC region? Well, similarly, Jen, the vast majority of deals are cleared 
but clearly in a climate informed by geopolitical tensions, food security issues that both of us mentioned earlier, and just market volatility, this is impacting how deals are being reviewed. And I think within the APAC region, the one jurisdiction that is often mentioned is, of course, China. China does continue to clear deals, and more than 95% of deals are cleared. It's actually closer to 98%. And so only a very, very small proportion of deals are either blocked or are subject to conditional clearances. But what we are seeing is that, of course, review periods are getting longer. And as a result of that, we've seen a modest uptick, an uptick nonetheless, of companies abandoning deals because they have not obtained clearance quickly in China. The the other trend we are seeing, uh, which I mentioned earlier, is the fact that SAMR, under the new anti-monopoly law, codified its power to call in deals that fall below the thresholds. China recently adopted new thresholds, but these have yet to be published. The thresholds are expected to be higher, considerably higher than they are currently. But at the same time, whilst that may result in a reduction of required filings, given SAMR's power to call in deals, we may actually see an uptick in that particular trend. So I think this is something that we can expect more of in 2024, namely fewer deals being notified, but at the same time, as a necessary corollary, more deals perhaps being called in if they raise competition concerns. The other thing I think we'll see more of is more litigation around the merger control process as well. That's something that's been happening for a while. There's been an increase in that, and I think we'll see that continue. Obviously, we're in a climate now where regulators are being quite uh, assertive, being assertive around jurisdiction. They're being uh, more aggressive around theories of harm. They're seeking to enforce earlier and more stridently. And we're seeing as a result an increase in litigation around that, whether that's challenges to procedural decisions at the information gathering stage or whether it's appeals or challenges to actual outcomes uh, and clearance or blocking decisions or commitment decisions. So I think both with merging parties and with third parties looking to challenge outcomes as well, we're going to see a continued increase in merger litigation. That's been a thing that's that's obviously very common in the US because it's inherent in the system there. As part and parcel of merger control, that's kind of how it works. In Europe, historically, that had been a lot less common and not so much now. So I think we'll see that become a really uh, ingrained trend over the next year or two. Yeah, agree with that, Mark. But maybe just end on a note of optimism. I think just because the regulatory and court environment keeps getting tougher doesn't mean that we can't get strategic deals cleared. It's very important to have upfront engagement with regulators. It's crucial to have a coordinated global strategy. But if you have those things, then there should be a path forward for most transactions. And really just ensuring a joined up strategy across jurisdictions which I think is one of the points people should take away from this podcast because there's so much going on in the different countries. But if you have a joined up strategy across jurisdictions from the outset of a deal, then that will be crucial for businesses trying to achieve merger control clearance in 2024. And Al, I think that is a perfect note to wrap on because in our next episode of Essential Antitrust, we're going to be exploring some more of these M&A related issues, and most importantly, how to thread that needle and get through the process unscathed. But Al, Nanette, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk us through this. It's been a really interesting way to start 2024. Thanks very much for everyone who tuned in today. And if you want to find out more about any of the points we've discussed, you can take a look at our report, 10 Key Themes, Global Antitrust in 2024. 
It's available on our website and via the link in the episode notes. Now, we will be unpacking these topics all year long and talking about the latest developments in competition law, so we hope you'll join us throughout 2024 for more Essential Antitrust.